A quick reminder that we have launched our two-in-one winter fundraiser to raise funds for my upcoming Climate Ride event, which is my strategy of choice to raise funds for the fight against climate change alongside a membership drive for the show, including incentives like exclusive t-shirts and hoodies that we only make available during these drives. So check out the campaign at bestoftheleft.com slash winter17. Find the big banner right on our homepage or simply click on the link in the show notes right on your listening device. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, The Real News Network, and The David Pakman Show. Uh, But before we start, I want to clarify something, uh, as this is a self-examination episode discussing the inner workings of the Democratic Party and progressive movement more broadly, and people get a little prickly on this topic, to say the least. And the last thing I want is for anyone to tune out or become irritated or become distracted from what I see as the critical issue at stake over what might just be miscommunication. And I know a lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction against the use of the word rigged when applied to the 2016 primary. And that word does get used a lot in the debate in general and today's show in particular, but I think that it's a lot less relevant than many people seem to think, and I want to get to a discussion about substance rather than about semantics. And so just to start on that word, I think that honest people could disagree about whether rigging something means that you merely tilt the outcome in one direction or another, or whether it means that to rig something is to make only one outcome a possibility, and there's a big difference between those two. So you can see how that would cause a lot of confusion for people discussing the 2016 primary and using the word rigged. Some may think that to rig an election means to make the outcome completely predetermined, whereas someone else could use it to describe the metaphorical thumb being on one side of the metaphorical scale. Uh, Personally, I prefer the more flexible definition, and that's why I don't cringe at the regular use of that term as a descriptor of the 2016 primary. You know, I've I've never thought that anyone rigged it 100%, making the outcome completely predetermined. That would be impossible. I do, however, think that it was tilted in a variety of ways, even if each of those tilts were small. So you're going to hear a lot of usage of the term rigged, and I can't see into everyone's heart to know exactly which definition they're using, but I simply urge you to not get caught up in that word for now. Hear the details and context that surround it, and then stick around at the end for my final comments because uh, by the end, I hope to convince you and everyone else that the details of what did or did not happen during the election, rigged or not, by any definition, doesn't actually matter as much as this debate would have you believe, and that there is something else at stake that I think almost everyone will be able to agree is even more important. So to start us off, this first short clip begins with uh, Elizabeth Warren famously agreeing that the primary was rigged using one definition or another, I'm not sure which, and Sam Cedar giving his opinions on the semantics, and his take on the use of the word is what I want you to carry with you throughout the rest of this episode. Very quickly, Senator, do you agree with the notion that it was rigged? Yes. Maybe it's just a semantic uh, argument, but when you rig something, uh, it means that you've actually like eliminated any possibility for any other outcome than one. And I just don't think the DNC have the ability to do that with the race. So, yes. 
the DNC process, if Brazil's uh, allegation is true, was corrupted, was contrary to their bylaws. Like I say, I think if 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 the allegations are true, I think you have an opportunity to like sue them for breach of their own bylaws, right? I mean, they have to maintain their own uh, charters and fiduciary responsibilities in that respect. But that's not the same as it being rigged. Rigged means we've set it up so only one outcome can take place. DNC didn't have the ability to do that. With that said, you know, that's a question of semantics, I guess. And I've expressed my opinion on it. And if, But if, if Elizabeth Warren coming out and says that brings about meaningful change at the DNC, good. Because <laughs> it clearly needs to be reformed. And if the allegations are true, you know, them being uh, told that they rigged things uh, is, is the least of, uh, of the problem. Donna Brazil was the interim chair of the DNC, uh, and she took over for Debbie Wasserman Schultz. This was uh, during uh, the 2016 elections, obviously. During the primaries, um, a lot of folks, including us here at the Young Turks, uh, said that uh, the DNC was clearly favoring Hillary Clinton. Uh, we had plenty of uh, evidence right out in the public, the way that they tried to minimize the debates, put them at times they would not uh, be uh, watched very much the polling booths that were closed uh, in places like Rhode Island and Arizona, which made no sense, as the Democratic Party was rightfully complaining about how uh, the Republican Party does voter suppression. There was plenty of evidence out in the public, and then, uh, unfortunately for Donna Brazil, uh, we found out through WikiLeaks that she had leaked um, questions uh, during the debates to Hillary Clinton's team. At first, she denied it. Uh, our own reporter Jordan Charton was the first one to. Uh, noticed that and asked CNN about it uh, when the WikiLeaks were released. Uh, he was also the first one to question Donna Brazil about whether she did it. She denied it at the time. Now she has admitted that she did do it. Uh, and she had said earlier, quote, it was a mistake I will forever regret. So we were right. Uh, she did in fact leak those questions and she has admitted that. But today she admits far, far more. It turns out that the primary was in fact absolutely positively rigged. This is the person who was the chair of the DNC. Now listen to what she says. She says, I had promised Bernie when I took the helm of the Democratic National Committee after the convention that I would get to the bottom of whether Hillary Clinton's team had rigged the nomination process as a cache of emails stolen by the Russian hackers and posted online had suggested. I'd had my suspicions from the moment I walked in the door of the DNC a month or so earlier based on the leaked emails. So, she says, I followed the money. My predecessor, Florida Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, had not been the most active chair in fundraising at a time when President Barack Obama's neglect had left the party in significant debt. So, 
Now you're gonna see uh, overwhelming and clear evidence here in a sec uh, that uh, not only they rigged it, but how they rigged it. But um, here she's explaining why they rigged it. So, and I'm sure that the folks at the DNC and the Democratic establishment are going to be furious with Donna Brazil. And and given that the, a lot of the progressive camp was already furious with her, I think that this is a courageous act. Uh, she's not gonna have uh, many allies left, but the truth is more important than that. And at least she has shared it today. And I know that a lot of you will think she should have shared it earlier. I understand that, I certainly empathize with that. But it is really important for us to know. And here, here she is saying, Wasserman Schultz didn't do her job. That is a heavy blow to Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She must be livid today. But furthermore, she says Barack Obama had neglected the party and left it in significant debt. That is another bold statement. And she knows, she was there, she saw the numbers. In fact, in this piece in Politico, she shares the numbers. So let's keep going. She says, as Hillary's campaign gained momentum, she resolved the party's debt and put it on a starvation diet. It had become dependent on her campaign for survival, for which she expected to wield control of its operations. So there you have it. So the party is in terrible debt, according to Brazil, because of Wasserman Schultz and Obama. And Hillary Clinton says, well, I could give you the money, but there's gonna be strings attached, and I'm going to exercise control. So. She went on to say, Brazil did, Debbie was not a good manager. She hadn't been very interested in controlling the party. She let Clinton's headquarters in Brooklyn do it as it, do as it desired, so she didn't have to inform the party officers how bad the situation was. How much control Brooklyn had and for how long was still something I had been trying to uncover for the last few weeks. So Brooklyn is Hillary's campaign headquarters, it is now absolutely clear that during the primaries that the DNC was actually being run by Hillary's headquarters. It doesn't get any more rigged than this. So look, a lot of people tried to influence the general election and I'm still livid over that. Um, but no one influenced the primaries and rigged the primaries more than the DNC. I wish it weren't so. Uh, Republicans will jump on this uh, and 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 I'm very saddened by that. But the way to prevent that is not to cover up the truth. The way to prevent that is to not rig it in the first place. So, but there's more devastating revelations here. She explains by September 7th, the day I called Bernie, I had found my proof and it broke my heart. She said the Saturday morning after the convention in July, I called Gary Gensler, the chief financial officer of Hillary's campaign. He wasted no words, he told me the Democratic Party was broke and $2 million in debt. Actually, they were in far bigger debt earlier before Hillary Clinton's team injected some money. And again, with the attached provisions that they now run the DNC. In the middle of a race where the DNC theoretically is supposed to be neutral between all of the different Democrats running, and they were not neutral. Because they had literally, in this case, been bought. But even so, by the time that Donna Brazil takes over, and it's now after the convention, they're still in $2 million of debt. And Hillary's finance chair explains that to Brazil. And she goes on to explain, he described the party as fully under the control of Hillary's campaign, which seemed to confirm the suspicions of the Bernie camp. The campaign had the DNC on life support, giving it money every month to meet its basic expenses, while the campaign was using the party 
as a fundraising clearinghouse. Now that goes to a second really important revelation. The first part of that sentence of that paragraph is already devastating. If you thought the election, the primary election was rigged, you were 100% right. So by the way, going forward, still there'll be a lot of people who, some who will be disingenuous, but some who will not have seen this confession and admission by Donna Brazil. And they'll say, "Oh, it's a conspiracy theory that it was rigged. And a lot of the mainstream media, I'm waiting for their apology. So when we talked about the evidence that was already available publicly as to why it appeared that the DNC was clearly favoring one of the candidates over the others, the rest of the media treated it as, oh, that, you know, look at these Bernie supporters, this Bernie camp making these wild allegations. They were wrong. They did not treat it with the credibility that it deserved, and we were right. And that matters. And going forward, uh, when you say that the election was rigged, they'll say, "Oh, come on! Are you saying that it's not us? It's the head of the DNC who says, yes, I was there. I saw the numbers. I talked to the people. It was definitely rigged.' But the second part is as equally important. They use the DNC for money laundering. Now, now it's not illegal. It's money laundering in a legal way, but for this gross amount of big donor money." That, that they flush through the DNC, but eventually the Hillary's campaign. This is also something that we reported on to be fair to Politico. Politico had reported on it earlier as well during the campaign. And, and she explains how they funneled the money through. Under the FEC law, an individual can contribute maximum of $2,700 directly to a presidential campaign. But the limits are much higher for contributions to state parties and a party's national committee. Individuals who had maxed out their $2,700 contribution limit to the campaign could write an additional check for $353,400 to the Hillary Victory Fund. That figure represented $10,000 to each of the 32 state parties who were part of the Victory Fund agreement, $320,000 and 33,400 to the DNC. The money would be deposited in the states first and transferred to the DNC shortly after that. Money in the battleground states usually stayed in that state, but all the other states funneled that money directly to the DNC, which quickly transferred the money to Brooklyn. Bernie never had a chance when it came to the DNC. They were already doing money laundering for his opponent. <laughs> I'm not sure there's ever been a primary in this country as unfair as this one was. In general elections, there have been a lot of dirty tricks. And don't get me wrong, in the Republican primary, for example, in 2000, George Bush and Karl Rove did terribly dirty tricks with robocalls that were malicious and racist against John McCain. But they did not control the RNC as thoroughly as Hillary Clinton has controlled the DNC. So yes, there were terrible, dirty tricks in, in, in plenty of primaries. But no primary, as far as I know, and this admission goes, was anywhere near as rigged as this primary in 2016. If you believe that at the time, you were right. And all the people who were skeptical were absolutely wrong. So uh, she explains that Politico did break that story at the time. And when the Politico story described this arrangement as Quote, essentially money laundering for the Clinton campaign, Hillary's people were outraged at being accused of doing something shady. Now, in reality, as she explains, they knew exactly that that is what they were doing, but they pretended to be outraged in public and in the press. And when they did, a lot of the press was cowed and didn't cover it as aggressively. 
their control over the press is another scandal. Uh, but that's for another day. Let me keep going on this story. Donna Brazil continues to explain, yet the states kept less than half of 1% of the $82 million they had amassed from the extravagant fundraisers Hillary's campaign was holding. Now, if they funneled 99.5% of the money to Hillary, I think that it is fair to call that money laundering. Now. It's not, again, in this case, it doesn't happen to be illegal. I think our campaign finance laws are disastrous. I think we've legalized bribery in a 100 different ways, and this is one of the ways. But was it funneling and laundering the money through the DNC and eventually through the Hillary campaign? Yes. Okay, the party chair usually shrinks the staff, Brazil explains, between presidential election campaigns. But Debbie had chosen to not do that. She had stuck lots of consultants on the DNC payroll, and Obama's consultants were being financed by the DNC too. And Brazil explains that because that is part of the reason why they were broke. During the elections, you're supposed to power up, you hire consultants theoretically to help you win elections, although Democratic consultants almost never do that. They lose all of the close races. And they've lost the House, the Senate, the presidency. They lost 69 out of 99 state legislatures. But the consultants get rich either way. But you're supposed to power down in order to save money so you don't go broke in between elections. But Obama and Wasserman Schultz said, no, don't power down, keep going. Keep paying our Democratic consultant friends. So they took and they took and they took. And some of you gave money to the DNC. They took that money. I don't know what they did with it during the off election cycle. What were we telling you on the Young Turks throughout? It's the Democratic consultants and lobbyists that are the real powers behind the DNC. They're the ones that are now attacking Bernie Sanders supporters and Keith Ellison supporters. They're the ones who attacked Keith Ellison in the first place. They're the ones who are saying, do not look at our budget. Because if you looked at the budget, you would know that most of the money is going to those corrupt Democratic consultants. And now this is another case where we were proven right and it the revelations show you that it is in fact true. Now, they explain about the agreement. So Brazil actually found a written agreement between the Hillary camp and the DNC. She said the agreement signed by Amy Dacey, the former CEO of the DNC, and Robbie Mook with a copy of the Mark, with a copy to Mark Elias, the lawyer, specified that in exchange for raising money and investing in the DNC, Hillary would control the party's finances, strategy, and all the money raised. Her campaign had a right of first refusal of who would be the party communications director, and it would make the final decisions on all the other staff. The DNC also was required to consult with the campaign about all other staffing, budgeting, data, analytics, and mailings. Complete and utter control of the DNC by one of the candidates running in a primary. No election has ever been so rigged in US history. So now it doesn't mean, I wanna be clear about this, that they went and changed votes. Now some of you believe that and we've gotta get further proof of that, but this is not the issue here. They rigged it in every other way. They, the communications staffer to the NC is working for Hillary Clinton behind the scenes. The finances are all going to Hillary Clinton. Everything that was done at the DNC was done at the orders of one of the candidates to the discrimination and bias against all of the other candidates, including Bernie Sanders. And now if you're saying, well, maybe it was after the primaries and during the general election, which actually would be normal. During the general election, the candidate that has won then used the party to help 
that party's leader win. That is not what happened here. So one final piece of clarity. This victory fund agreement, Brazil says, however, had been signed in August of 2015. Just four months after Hillary announced her candidacy and nearly a year before she officially had the nomination. They have in so many ways ruined the Democratic Party. Now, who in their right mind is gonna donate to the DNC, given this level of corruption? But I want to defeat Republicans, I am a progressive. So I believe that the progressive candidate is better off. I think uncorrupted candidates who don't take corporate PAC money, who don't take lobbyists are way better off. And yes, you should definitely give to those specific candidates. But the party needs infrastructure. It needs to be an actual fighter for progressive causes. It hasn't been that for a long, long time. And now the corruption that is revealed is so thorough that that you can't that donating to the DNC, you know, to this day we can't see where the budget is going. To this day, the same consultants that ripped you off before are ripping you off today. Who would give to that organization? These, this, these corrupt people inside the DNC have destroyed the Democratic Party. They have taken and taken and taken. They've taken all the money and they robbed it blind. Now, when Democrats lose, they turn around and blame progressives? Are you kidding me? It is 100% your fault. All you cared about was taking the money out of this and people gave their hard-earned money to help progressives win, and you didn't do that. And at the end, through all this corruption, what happened? You lost to Donald Trump anyway. There's no one else to blame. Now the former chair of the DNC explains, yes, it was the DNC. Yes, it was the Hillary Clinton campaign. This ends almost all debates on this issue. It was corrupt, it was rigged, they purposely picked Hillary Clinton, and if we had a fair election and a fair primary, perhaps we could have had a different candidate, and most importantly, a different president. These people didn't care about progressive ideology or priorities. All they cared about was money and their own personal careers. And now the result is we have Donald Trump for president. I can't think of anything more shameful. This is exactly what we're going to end at the Democratic Party. It is time for progressives to take over, enough with corporate Democrats. They have ruined any chance of progressives winning in this country. They must step out of the way immediately. Everyone involved in this should of course be fired. And Obama, who helped destroy the Democratic Party in this case by accruing all of those debts, and then say, no, 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 keep paying my consultant friends. Then installs Tom Perez as the leader of the DNC. Now you trust Tom Perez? You trust the people running the DNC today? Are you kidding me? You have to get rid of all of them. We have to start from scratch. It's time for progressives to take over the party and to actually win elections and to actually be uncorrupted.
We turn now to the outcome of Tuesday's elections around the United States, where Democrats made big gains as voters turned against the Republican Party one year after Donald Trump was elected president. In New Jersey, Democrat Phil Murphy defeated Kim Guadano in the, in the race to replace the deeply unpopular Republican Governor Chris Christie. In Virginia, Democrat Ralph Northam defeated Republican Ed Gillespie in a gubernatorial race that was widely seen as a referendum on President Trump's policies. Northam addressed his supporters Tuesday night. We are back by popular demand. Virginia, we have witnessed yet another democratic sweep today you know it was said that the eyes of the nation are now on the commonwealth today virginians have answered and have spoken virginia has told us to end the divisiveness that we will not condone hatred and bigotry and to end the politics that have torn this country apart uh, in response to the defeat of Republicans, uh, Trump tweeted, quote, Ed Gillespie worked hard but did not embrace me or what I stand for. Northam's acceptance speech was briefly interrupted by immigration rights activists who protested Northam's pledge to sign a ban on sanctuary cities as governor. The protest prompted a security official to rush Northam off the stage. In Maine, voters approved an expansion of Medicaid for low-income adults, defying Republican Governor Paul LePage and, and, and lending support to the Affordable Care Act. In Ohio, voters rejected a measure that would have forced pharmaceutical companies to reduce the price of prescription drugs after Big Pharma outspent its opponents by a three-to-one margin. In Washington state, Democrats have flipped the state Senate and will take control of the entire Washington state government. Here in New York, voters rejected a convention to rewrite the state's constitution. And in New York City, incumbent Mayor Bill de Blasio won a second term in office in a landslide election. In Philadelphia, civil rights attorney Larry Krasner uh, has been elected district attorney. Krasner, a longtime opponent of capital punishment who opposes police stop-and-frisk policies, has represented protesters with Black Lives Matter, ACT UP, Occupy Philadelphia, and other progressive groups. This is Krasner. It is a victory party on Tuesday night. This is a mandate for a movement that is loudly telling government what it wants. And what it wants is criminal justice reform in ways that require transformational change within the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. This is a movement that says we are not just voters. We are the bosses who pay the taxes. the city workers, and we have every right to expect that we will get what we just told you we want, which is transformational change in criminal justice and in this district attorney's office. The Minneapolis City Council made history Tuesday night as voters elected the city's first transgender con uh, council member, making Andrea Jenkins the first transgender woman of color elected to public office in the nation. And in Virginia's Prince William County, Democrat journalist Danica Rome is set to become the nation's first openly transgender state lawmaker after she was elected to represent the 13th District of Virginia's House of Delegates. This is Rome speaking with a reporter after she won. 
on the on the trans part there. Yeah. Yeah, I am a transgender woman. We won because I am a transgender woman. Because I am a reporter. Because I am a lifelong resident of Manassas. Because of my inherent identifiers, not despite them. I never ran away from them. I championed them. And because of that, yeah, Prince William County is no is now more inclusive than it was before this election. With her victory, Danica Rome will unseat 73-year-old, 13-term incumbent Republican Bob Marshall, who's repeatedly called himself Virginia's chief homophobe. Marshall authored an unsuccessful bathroom bill that would have prohibited transgender people from using public restrooms matching their gender identity. For more, we're joined by Norman Solomon, co-author of the new report, Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis. He is co-founder of the online activist group RootsAction.org, author of many books, including War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. Before we talk about your report, Norm, let's talk about the elections that just took place. Do you see this as a referendum on Donald Trump? Well, certainly he's back on his heels, and it's always good when the proponents of uh, bigotry and racism and xenophobia are defeated. So in that sense, uh, certainly uh, we had a good night last night, and yet a very steep climb ahead with so much power vested in the right wing, corporate America and the military throughout government agencies and the federal government, as well as most state governments. Uh, Juan, you've been closely following these elections all over the country. Well, what some I think some of the interesting things, and Norm, you, uh, you may agree on this. First of all, in the the Washington state result, where now Democrats are in control of uh, both houses as well as the governor's chair, means that the entire West Coast of the United States, uh, Washington state, uh, Oregon, and California, are all probably the bluest sections of, of the country in that they're all uh, have Democratic governors and Democratic legislators. Legislatures and also in New York City, apparently, um, not just uh, Bill de Blasio's 40 point victory in the city, but also the suburbs, Westchester County uh, and Nassau County, uh, both uh, now have Democratic county executives where they previously had Republican ones. So it seems to be that some of the blue areas of the country are becoming even bluer, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the country necessarily is shifting that much. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that. Right. Well, what happened in Washington state means that now seven states out of 50 have total Democratic Party control over the governorship and the legislatures. But at the same time, we have fully half of the state. So we're talking 25, 26, where Republicans control every branch of government. And I think that's an indicator of just how many gains have been made by an extremist right wing party, uh, which uh, Noam Chomsky correctly calls the most dangerous criminal organization in the history of the world. That's where we are right now. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party has not been able to put together the mobilization of the base in a way that can counteract that kind of very vile uh, corporate militarist force that we have. As a matter of fact, we have a situation where in the last nine years, uh, and this is particularly important because it spanned the entire Obama administration. There were 1,000 state legislative seats lost by Democrats to Republicans. And that tells us something about the overall effect of the uh, corporate policies that have been pursued from the top of the Democratic Party. Well, well, Norm, uh, let's get into your book, uh, Autopsy, the De Democratic Party in Crisis. What are some of the key issues that you raise in that book? Yes. Well, this uh, special report, uh, which uh, we had a task force 
uh, signed for several months to work on. I co-coordinated with Karen Bernal, who's the chair of the Progressive Caucus of the California Democratic Party. And our findings were particularly, I think, striking uh, in that last year, the Democratic Party in the general election campaign uh, pursued priorities and policies that have remained in place to this moment. And most strikingly, perhaps, it's to disrespect and defund approaches and outreach towards the base, young people, people of color, and the working class overall. And rather than put the messaging, the policy, the priorities, the funding and outreach, the advertising towards that base, which is the future of the party and the future, I might say, of human progress in terms of uh, decency, human rights, environmental protection, and peace, the top of the Democratic Party last year and this has continued to fund enormously expensive pursuit of what are called the persuadables. Uh, Republican, often suburban voters who voted for Romney in 2012, and according to the Clinton mythology last year and continuing from the Democratic National Committee, somehow they're going to be dissuaded from voting for the Republican Party now. And that is a dead end, a very dangerous one, and it's actually a major reason why we have Donald Trump in the White House today. Um, one of the issues that was raised across the country, that their top issue was health care, and something unusual happened in Maine, voters approving an expansion of Medicaid uh, for low-income adults, defying the Republican governor, Paul LePage, an early supporter of Donald Trump, uh, also lending support to the Affordable Care Act. But, um, Norm, this whole issue of health care, of single-payer health care, of Obamacare, um, and how significant it is. Yeah, it's crucial, and it goes to the underlying broad question of, who is the government to serve? Will it serve Wall Street or Main Street? And the mythology that keeps being propagated by so many pundits uh, and the top of the Democratic Party is that the party needs to move to the center, quote-unquote, uh, which is a code for saying that uh, Wall Street and the big donors should determine policy, which very much means, uh, and you have people who are in the Democratic Party leadership, like Dick Gephardt, who have been spending years preventing single-payer to the best of their ability from even getting on the top of the congressional agenda. And I think this goes to the question of what does it mean to have progressive populism? And if we're going to have a meaningful uh, social change movement that can exercise great muscle inside and outside the electoral arena, then we need to redefine what it means to have progressive politics. You know, there are many uh, people in the Democratic Party, officials who call themselves progressive, but there's an insurance company that calls itself progressive. That doesn't mean much of anything. And what we need today, I think, and I'm very happy that the autopsy report has been getting such a strong response, including cover story in the current issue of The Nation magazine. What we need now is a conscious effort with the Tuesday elections behind us to transform the Democratic Party, to do that from the bottom up. I was just watching on MSNBC this morning, Donna Brazil, the former interim chair of the DNC, with, of course, her now blockbuster book out, uh, telling the national audience, uh, she said, uh, quote, I like what Tom Perez is doing, unquote, referring to the chair of the DNC. Well, progressives should not like what Tom Perez is doing. He engineered the purge of more progressives 
out of the DNC uh, apparatus in a meeting in Las Vegas, a national meeting a couple of weeks ago. There's a conscious effort to maintain the corporate control over the power. We can stop that. I think an uprising and a groundswell can transform this party to achieve the two goals that are spelled out in our autopsy. And by the way, anybody can download it. It's not copyrighted. Make any use of it you want at democraticautopsy.org. The first goal is to fight the right, the xenophobes, the racists, the misogynists, the Trump Republican Party. We've got to roll them back. We've got to defeat them. And the other goal is to advance progressive agendas. And we're told constantly by the mass media that those are in contradiction. You've got to moderate your message in order to uh, defeat the Republicans. On the contrary, we've seen what happens when you send across a Wall Street moderate message, a conciliatory so-called centrist message. We saw what happened to Hillary Clinton when she tried to do that. We've got Trump in the White House as a result. We are in the midst of our two-in-one winter fundraiser, which is both a fundraiser to fight climate change through Climate Ride and also a membership drive to help sustain the show. And a few more Climate Ride donors have chipped in, so a huge thanks to Jeffrey D., Michael R., and Brent L. uh, for their Climate Ride donations, and also thanks to all of those who've been joining up or switching over as members on Patreon. I, I cannot stress enough how much that is going to help us in the long run. Uh, now, for the charitable campaign, our goal is to raise $5,000 for Climate Ride. Uh, those are the tax-deductible donations that go to the Climate Ride nonprofit, whose only goal in their existence is to build the fundraising infrastructure for climate change and active transit organizations looking for ways to raise money. And this campaign is still young, and we're closing in on 10% of our goal raised. Uh, not to worry, though. I have done this enough times to know how it goes. People procrastinate, uh, they get their donations in late, helping us cross the line in a flurry of excitement right near the end. I'm hoping to wrap up this fundraiser by the end of the year, but please let's not have everyone waiting until the last minute. That, uh, that That's too much excitement. Uh, now, as for the Patreon drive, I have an initial goal of uh, 750 patrons. That's donors of any size, a dollar per month and up and includes existing members switching over from our old system. And as an incentive at 750 patrons, Amanda and I will begin to double the number of bonus episodes we do. Plus, when you support both campaigns by donating uh, $25 or more to Climate Ride and sign up at the membership level of $6 per month or more on Patreon, you get limited time access to our awesome apparel items. New members get t-shirts or hoodies as a thank you gift for free, while existing members can purchase apparel from us at cost. Obviously, I wish I could afford to thank all of our members with free stuff, but giving away too many things for free is a terrible way to raise money. I'm sure you understand. For all the details, just head to bestoftheleft.com and click on the huge winter fundraiser banner on the homepage. Or, of course, there's a convenient link in the show notes that you can probably click on right from the device you're using to listen to these words. So, Thanks so much in advance for your support. Okay, we're going to start going through this report, Autopsy in Crisis. Uh, It begins with an executive summary. And uh, Norman, mention mention again where people can go to see the, the whole report. Yeah, the whole report with all the segments broken out is democraticautopsy.org. 
Okay, so we're going to go through some of the points of this executive summary and kind of flesh it out. And then after a while, we'll, we'll go back and take viewer questions again uh, about what we've discussed. Uh, so th the first part begins. Um, aggregated data and analysis shows that policies, operations, and campaign priorities of the National Democratic Party undermine support and turnout from its base in the 2016 general election. Since then, the Democratic Party leadership has done little to indicate that it's heeding key lessons from the 2016 disaster. I, I guess that partly goes back to something we discussed in, in the first um, part, uh, which is I, I, to heed lessons, you have to actually have intent to do something different. But if your policies, which include the Obama economic policies, and Hillary was there promising to continue that legacy, if those policies lead to great inequality, because as you said in part one, you're, you're really, your fidelity is to the donor class and who are benefiting from that growth and inequality, then it's not like you made mistakes you're going to learn from. Uh, your interest takes you there. Yeah, if you want to satisfy your big donors and you want them to be essentially steering the ship with you and you think uh, you know, down uh, shoveling coal, so to speak, is the working class that will provide the votes, then that's a pretty good system. And if you can win, uh, well, well, great. But that means that your attention and your priorities uh, go to satisfying those wealthy donors and the, you know, the Wall Streets and the big, big bank interests uh, that they're uh, intertwined with. There's a, a notable uh, fact, for instance, that came out of uh, these sorts of priorities. When you think about it, it's stunning that between the Obama race in 2012 and the Clinton race in 2016, the Democratic ticket actually lost 5% among uh, Latino voters. Uh, Obama in 2012 got 71%, and Hillary Clinton in November uh, a year ago uh, only got 66%. Well, how could that be when Hillary Clinton was running against? Uh, really an avowed a xenophobe, uh, hostile to Mexicans, calling them racist, extremely uh, negative towards and dangerous towards uh, Latino immigrants and Latinos generally. And yet uh, there was a slippage of 5%, which clearly would have made a, the difference in swing states. And the answer has to do with the messaging priorities and the spending priorities. We quote in the autopsy report um, a Latino, uh, pretty high-ranking organizer in the Democratic Party nationally, who was, he said, literally begging for $3 million to begin messaging to Latino voters. He got $300,000 instead and ultimately quit in anger and frustration, justified uh, in anger and frustration. And this was replicated again and again. We quote in the autopsy this now infamous statement by the person's now the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in July of uh, 2016, at the time of the Democrat National Convention, here Senator Schumer, this wise uh, supposed leader of the Democratic Party, uh, says point blank that for every blue collar vote we lose in Western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate white suburban Republican votes in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And Schumer added, you can uh, duplicate that 
in Wisconsin uh, and Ohio. And of course, uh, it turned out to be a horrific strategy, but I think it comes down to priorities. And the priorities of the people in charge of the Democratic Party, unfortunately, are first to keep the donor class in place and to keep themselves personally reelected. The second point in the uh, autopsy summary, which kind of takes off from what you were just saying, uh, which I I personally think is the story of the 2016 elections. Uh, There's many things going on, but if you have to isolate one factor of why Clinton lost, I think it's this one. Uh, It reads, the Democratic National Committee and the party's congressional leadership remain bent on prioritizing the chase for elusive Republican voters over the Democratic base, especially people of color, young people and working class voters overall. I mean, I think the great irony uh, of the 2016 election is while Hillary Clinton was chasing Republican voters, traditional Republican voters, with all kind of centrist language, um, the, the re- Trump and the Republican Party were focused on chasing uh, lower paid and medium paid working class votes in the swing states. And, and, and Clinton thought they had this, these votes just wrapped up. There's no point even campaigning or spending any money in these places and, and, and spent all their effort, as the report says, on chasing uh, Republicans who in the end vote the way they always vote, which is they vote in, uh, in the great majority for anyone that says they're going to cut taxes and don't much care about what else the Republican candidate is saying, given how George Bush won a second term after the disaster in Iraq. Again, lower taxes, uh, we don't really much care about anything else. That vote stayed where, where it always goes. And, and Trump figured out, or Steve Bannon figured out, that actually they can go and steal Democrat votes amongst sections of the working class, especially when they targeted the swing states. Yeah, I think that's right. And the Democratic uh, strategy, such as it was, that prevailed was essentially to say, well, there's low-hanging fruit from uh, people of color and uh, working class uh, overall, and so we don't need to bother to put much energy picking that low-hanging fruit. We've got some high-hanging fruit that we think maybe we can reach, which is those so-called moderate Republican uh, white voters. And, of course, there wasn't much uh, harvested from that vote. One way to look at it as well, I think one aspect is that ultimately the druthers of the people uh, who have the dominant control of the DNC and the party nationally is they don't want a party that is dominated by people of color, by the young, uh, by the working class energy. They, they don't want those folks crashing the gates too much. And uh, we say later on in the autopsy in the section on social uh, movements that the National Democratic Party, the DNC, cannot bond with the base if they're afraid of the base. And I think it's accurate to say that the people in control of the DNC, they're afraid of the Democratic Party base. They need to keep it at bay because if the base of the party isn't kept at bay and actually can keep moving into the party and gaining strength, then it will upset the apple cart. And frankly, those people will be out of the job at the top. Uh, Another part of the report, next point in the executive summary, uh, 11% drop in support from black women uh, for the Democratic Party in a survey. And overall, in 2016, you say in your report that the vote of people of color went down for the Democratic Party. Yes, and that survey was uh, taken, uh, co-sponsored by Essence magazine, and it compared 
the uh, vote uh, enthusiasm and support for the Democratic Party from its most reliable voting demographic, which is African-American women. And that shift from simply 2016 to the next year is stunning. It reflects, uh, it's a marker for the lack of confidence that the Democratic Party has earned. You've got to fight like hell with and for people. You can't just throw along some platitudes and assume that that's going to galvanize the base. I think, Paul, there's a tremendous irony that uh, I saw from the floor of the Democratic National Convention, you did as well covering it, and that millions of people saw on television, which is there were many African-Americans and Latinos and Asian-Americans, people of color at the podium during the National Democratic Convention. And it was the effort of the party to symbolically show its affinity with those who are uh, suffering inequities from inequities in the society. But then when it came to actually outreach, when it came to pouring money into door-to-door, which is the best kind of outreach, uh, messaging, advertising, targeting, and also content of policies, uh, it was uh, just shifting and setting aside those sorts of priorities. And instead, as we've been saying, aiming for those uh, who are in other uh, and, uh, frankly, more privileged demographic groups. The uh, report uh, makes recommendations for reform. Um, the, I mean, we can go through some of the specific points, but the general objective is democratize the party. Um, this is partly why this fight for who's running the DNC now, Tom Perez and uh, you know, recently purging people like uh, Zogby and other uh, Sanders supporters. There's supposed to be this unity commission, but as they talk about a unity committee, they're getting rid of Sanders people. Um, the, uh, the, the fight, if anything, is getting more bitter. I, I, we're, we're trying to report on more of this, but there's fights going on at every level of the party right now, from precinct captains to who's running state democratic parties. And at every level of these fights... Um, the uh, corporate Democratic uh, leadership, which, which includes President Obama, who, uh, my understanding, is still very actively involved in all this, is, is tooth and nail fighting against this Sanders slash more progressive section of the party. Yes, it belies the sort of claim that, oh, let's just pipe down and unite against uh, the Trump Republicans. I uh, have heard from people who uh, talk with you know, former middle-level Obama administration folks, DNC people, who were just astonished at the amount of time and energy and resources uh, going into trashing and denouncing Bernie Sanders supporters. And I think it uh, underscores that this is not ultimately about personalities. It's about economic class. It's about power. And it's about what is the uh, intention as to whose interests will be most represented by the Democratic Party. And I underscore that this is the tool that we have uh, to fight the right and advance and implement progressive policies. Yes, it's a long shot. That's the best shot we have, though. And we have to organize. A lot of things that seem long shots have become reality. Uh, Same-sex marriage equality uh, five, six, seven years ago would have seemed uh, way out of grasp. People organized and raised hell around the country and made it possible. When we look ahead, for instance, December 8th and 9th is the final meeting of the what the DNC calls its uh, Re- Unity Reform Commission. 
And that's going to be another knockdown drag out. It should be. And I want to acknowledge that this independent report, Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, is intended as a tool to fight back against the corporate oligarchic forces that now dominate the DNC and the National Party as a whole. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, you can transform the Democratic Party. After the presidential election, the Democratic National Committee chose to do a unity reform commission, but not a public autopsy of the party. To correct that glaring oversight, as we've heard today, an organization called Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, formed to conduct an analysis and suggest a new path forward. While this group does not attempt or claim that their report is comprehensive, they focus on some of the party's most crucial flaws, fissures, and opportunities. You can read the full report at democraticautopsy.org. But for now, I'm going to read to you just a brief portion from the final chapter of the report entitled The Party and the Future. Quoting, Operating from a place of defensiveness and denial will not turn the party around. Neither will status quo methodology. When discussing the loss of the presidency, we deny ourselves a deeper assessment if the conversation is limited to Clinton and Sanders, what their campaigns and supporters did and didn't do, and what should have been done. In fairness to Clinton, much of the party's weakness was in place well before her 2016 run. What must now take place includes honest self-reflection and confronting a hard truth that many view the party as often in service to a rapacious oligarchy and increasingly out of touch with people in its own base. Revitalized progressive populism, multicultural, multiracial, and multigenerational, means fighting for genuine democracy. Outmoded narratives and facile calls for unity must be replaced with a new vision of politics that is explicitly inclusive and participatory. The party must learn how to speak a populist tongue that is in sync with real advocacy advocacy for a clear agenda, putting public needs above corporate profits. An imperative is to find common political denominators that are inspirational and practical, cutting across demographic lines while building foundations for social advancement and a humane future." So what can you do to ensure this advice is taken seriously and turns into actionable steps within the Democratic Party? Well, You have to get involved and fight for it. That can mean many things, but here are three ways you can jump in and start pushing for reform. Many of you have heard about Justice Democrats, the response to the weakness and corporatization of the Democratic Party. Candidates endorsed and supported by Justice Democrats believe in progressive Democratic ideals and policies, but refuse to take corporate donations. They are primarying the most corporate Democrats in the country, no matter how long they've served in office, such as Dianne Feinstein of California. If you believe in this method, head over to justicedemocrats.org, read their platform, check out their candidates, and start volunteering for or donating to their campaigns. Or you could become a Justice Democrat candidate yourself. 
If you're looking to push the party left by electing more Democratic Socialists, a la Bernie Sanders, then you may want to get involved with the Democratic Socialist of America, or DSA. DSA candidates had some big wins in local elections around the country in November, and you can help build on that momentum by donating or volunteering to support DSA candidates at dsausa.org. Or, once again, you can become a DSA candidate yourself. And finally, remember that the Democratic Party is made up of the people who show up. So if you want the DNC to change, then you're going to want to find your local DNC chapter and show up. Be ready to face resistance when you're inside telling them what they're doing is wrong, but more progressives getting involved in the DNC on the local level is never a bad thing. The website for the Association of State Democratic Chairs is a good place to start. Head over to asdc.democrats.org to find your state party and drill down to find your local chapter. And of course, you can always become a candidate yourself. At the end of the day, this is an all-of-the-above strategy, and change can only be made through pressure from both outside and within. So get behind the method you feel most strongly about, and together we might be able to make the Democratic Party the party of the people again. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if making Democrats wake up to their failures and pushing them to change course is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about transforming the Democratic Party via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. All right. The topic of how to fix the Democratic Party, this keeps coming up in different ways. And the context has been just the election results of 2016, right? Losing to Donald Trump, if you're in the Democratic Party, should really make you question, well, we, we have a problem and we need to fix it. How do we do it? A DNC meddling and this general problem of corporate Democrats, the problem of Tom Perez as DNC chair sort of continuing this establishment Democrat problem. And then, of course, the urgency of suppressing Trumpism, right? What can Democrats do in the immediate to try to prevent or suppress the ideas of the Trump administration, however harebrained and ragtag they may be? And they're pretty harebrained, as we've been covering for more than nine months at this point. So there's a macro and a micro here, right? An example of the macro that needs to be discussed is Democrats need to move to the left. Democrats need to take stronger progressive positions on important issues. Micro would be maybe the uh, superdelegates need to go. Maybe that's something that we need to look at. And recently we've actually heard some calls from some Democratic elected officials saying that superdelegates have to go. Uh, Bernie Sanders recently wrote an article with the same title, How to Fix the Democratic Party in Politico. And it included some interesting things, some ideas that I found a little bit less relevant. And I wanted to discuss this. And this is not meant to be all encompassing, but I'm going to talk about some of the areas in which Democrats Inc. really needs to shape up. And, and the first step in any intervention is you've got to admit that you have a problem, right? And Bernie Sanders points this out and it's abundantly true, which is the current strategy just isn't working. What I call Democrats Inc 
have lost a thousand seats in state legislatures in the U.S. in I don't know how many years. Republicans now control the House and the Senate and more than 30 of the 50 governorships and, of course, the White House. And in the end, remember, we lost to Donald Trump despite demographics shifting in the in, in the favor of the Democratic Party over the last 15, 20 years, despite Donald Trump being this incompetent buffoon appealing to the lowest common denominator, we still lost as progressives through the Democratic Party. And again, I'm not a Democrat, but I'm a progressive. And right now I still see the Democratic Party as a major conduit to possible progressivism. Listen to myself even hedging that language, right? Uh, it's not good when you lose to Donald Trump. So let's start going through a, a list of some things that Democrats should should do, starting with you got to fix the DNC, right? Meaning, number one, get a real progressive running it. And number two, stop messing with the primaries. The DNC as this uh, unbiased, impartial arbiter of the primary process, that's a pipe dream that was destroyed by what took place in 2016. You got to fix the DNC at the DN. You got to fix Democrats at the DNC level. Number number one, number two, get rid of superdelegates, superdelegates. I get it, right? They are there supposedly to protect against some crazy, wacky insurgent. Uh, this isn't the Republican Party, right? The left wing equivalent of Donald Trump isn't going to win the Democratic primary merely because you get rid of superdelegates. And I believe it is time for superdelegates to go. Number three, work endlessly, tirelessly on preventing voter suppression. And that means you also have to work on voter registration. It's sort of a two part thing. I've said it before. The time it will take you to convince a Trumpist not to his vote for his reelection in 2020, you could get 10 people who are already sort of on the left but may never have voted out to the polls or at least five people, whatever. There's some big imbalance there in the amount of time and preventing the voter suppression, right? That is a major thing. Republicans have been super upfront about the fact that they realize the demographics are increasingly on the side of Democrats. Do not let Republicans suppress the vote. And that doesn't mean three months before the election to start blogging about irregularities with voting machines in Pennsylvania, right? That, that means now that means now we have to be working on preventing the voter suppression tactics from succeeding. Now, let's talk a little bit about policy, right? Number four on policy, move to the left. And this applies to a number of different issues. Health care. There needs to be a more decided left wing push. There is a debate to be had about whether or not the Democratic Party should make it their platform to have single payer health care. Bill Scher, for example, and many of you disagreed with his view, and I disagreed with it to a great extent, said Bill Scher said, it's a mistake for Democrats to say our policy, our our platform is now single payer. Our platform should be improving Obamacare. I don't necessarily agree with Bill Sherry. You don't have to. But what's clear is you got to move to the left on health care. And it can't be it, it would be nice to have a public option if it's OK. But if not, we'll get rid of that as well. That's a weak position. OK, that can't be the position on health care for Democrats move left on a living wage, right? Lots of issues when it comes to living wage. It's not just minimum wage. It's way more when we talk about a living wage. It has to do with cost of living. It has to do with inequality. I'm not going to get into the minutia of it now because this is an overview. But on on a living wage, there are a number of ways that this needs to be approached. And then this gets to this broader issue that needs to be a core Democratic issue, which is number five on my list which is a focus on economic 
fairness. Economic fairness includes income and wealth inequality, which connects to the minimum wage, but it also includes corruption and cronyism, this swamp draining that, of course, the, the opposite of which is actually happening under Donald Trump. The fact that we have two justice systems in the United States, one for the rich and one for everyone else, or maybe we, we say one for the poor and then one for everybody else. I don't know exactly how you want to slice and dice it, but we have at least two economic uh, uh, just, justice systems, rather. And that connects to the war on drugs as well. So economic fairness, economic fairness, and make it an issue of patriotism, as George Lakoff has suggested Democrats should frame it. Number six, get out of the pragmatism illusion, okay? I am a pragmatist, sometimes to such a degree that people in our audience get irritated with me. But sometimes we fall for the pragmatism illusion, which ends up being a way to sort of hide corporate Democrats commitment to the status quo and not having actual policy ideas that reflect where the public is, which generally is to the left of the Democratic Party. Number seven, get away from losing issues. OK, and we can debate which issues those are. There's those who say gun safety is a losing issue for Democrats, not because it isn't important, but because even after Sandy Hook with 85 or 90 percent public approval and uh, President Obama in the White House and, and seemingly the best opportunity to pass 100 percent background checks, it still couldn't be done. And there's this idea that guns and other issues and we could come up with the list uh, uh, on, on another day that there are losing issues that are only going to get people to vote against you and won't really get people to vote with you so that you've got to get away from those losing issues. And number eight, don't ignore the white working class. Now, I want to be really careful with how I, I explain this. I'm not saying that Democratic policy wouldn't be better for the white working class than Republican policy. It would be. There's no doubt about that. But the impression in the last election among many working class whites was that the Democrats don't really care about them. I don't believe that that's true. I believe that the policies of someone like Bernie Sanders would not only be good for non-white voters, but they would also be good for working class white voters. But you've got to make it clear that that's the case. So this is a difficult time to really make these changes. And usually it doesn't happen this way. I've been reading Hunter S. Thompson's book, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, which is about the 1972 uh, campaign of George McGovern against Richard Nixon, the primary and the eventual loss to Richard Nixon in 72. And in the book, it's explained that we're McGovern. This is the idea of Hunter S. Thompson. And I think there's a lot to it. Were George McGovern to have won in November of 1972, he could have completely upended the structure of the Democratic Party. But the fact that McGovern lost, which is which is what happened, right? It made it so that the Democratic Party immediately went back to the good old boy stuff. And we have to make sure that we don't see a resurgence. And the Tom Perez selection as DNC chair scares me in this way that we don't see a resurgence and a sort of planting of the feet or bearing of the head in the sand away from the Bernie Sanders direction and more towards the sort of corporate Democrats, Democrats, Inc. direction. Not exactly an analogous situation, but I think there's a relevant lesson from 1972 in thinking about 2016 and the path forward.
We've just heard clips today, starting with the Majority Report giving a brief breakdown of the use of the term rigged. The Young Turks laid out the breaking news story of Donna Brazil's revelations about the DNC. Democracy Now! discussed the recent election night victories for the Democrats. The Real News Network went through some of the highlights of the Democratic Autopsy Report. Our activism for today is to take this information and put it to work where it counts by getting engaged now with the campaigns that will shape the outcome of the 2018 elections. And finally, we just heard David Pack and give his advice on how to fix the Democratic Party. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And no voicemails today. I just want to uh, wrap up somewhat quickly with my take on the whole DNC-Clinton campaign issue. And and I have to say, I'll I'll just go ahead and speak for everyone who's coming to this on, on my side of this argument, is that the frustrating thing about it is that This is anti-corruption 101 level stuff. It is so simple and so clear that there should be absolutely no room for debate. So the fact that there is still debate going on is just baffling. It's completely baffling. So just to, to break it down in the simplest possible terms, something, you know, we've all heard of before. Imagine your local radio station having a contest, something as simple as like, hundredth caller gets free concert tickets or whatever. Everyone has heard that anyone who is related in any way to the radio station is not allowed to win contests like that. And there is absolutely no room for argument for how fairly a person may have entered the contest. Maybe they genuinely were the 100th caller. Doesn't matter. Anyone related to the radio station cannot win a prize like that. And the reason is simple. There is simply no way to ever convince anyone that the process was fair and that, oh, it just happens that the DJ's girlfriend won the tickets, but she really just happened to call in the hundredth slot. Like, how could we possibly have known? Like, no, 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 you just can't do that. There has to be an outright ban because it's about protecting faith in the process itself not about whether you can make a good enough argument that it was fair. And to sort of demonstrate this point, let me go with something that pretty much everyone listening can agree with. So the Republicans are talking about voter fraud, and they have for years now. And for me, the biggest danger is not that they're going to succeed with pushing people off the voter rolls and preventing people from voting. Obviously, that is terrible, and that is very bad. But What is even more dangerous than that is that they are undermining trust in the system itself. The more they convince rabid right-wing people that there are people voting illegally, that there may come a day when a Democrat wins an election, the presidency or any other election, and there may be enough people who are so convinced that they only won through voter fraud that they refuse to accept the election results. And that is when democracy goes into absolute crisis mode. That is what happens when people lose faith in the system. And so I argue that the same is basically true of the DNC. Like with the radio station, it doesn't matter whether the contest was actually rigged or not. The point of the rules outright banning circumstances that can even be perceived as corruption are there to instill faith in the system. So at this point, it simply does not matter whether all that Clinton money, the control, the staff choices they had played 
any role in how the DNC acted during the election. You know, spending time and energy uh, trying to convince Bernie supporters that even though Clinton was funding and deeply influencing the DNC, the election was actually still really fair because no one did anything or made any decisions of any kind internally to help the Clinton campaign over the Sanders campaign. It's a complete waste of time to try to make that argument because it doesn't address the point. The perception of corruption is exactly as damaging to faith in the system as real corruption. So it's not the fate of one election that matters. It's the faith in the system that's been lost. And that is what must be regained if the party has any hope of rebounding. So don't get bogged down in the details of whether it was rigged or not, or what the definition of rigged is. If it's good enough for your local radio station in terms of anti-corruption, it should be good enough for one of the two national political parties. And not just for the sake of the election, but for faith in the system itself. So keep the comments coming in. As always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter, and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what